Welcome. We are glad that you are with us today. If you're visiting, stick around just a little while so we can get acquainted with you. And, uh, uh uh-oh. See what happened. Yeah, it looks like the computer went down. Oh, well, technology, it's only good when it works. I'd like you to think back to a time, time when you were working on something significant, something very important. I don't know what that might have been, what challenges you might have faced. Maybe it was something you were working on for school some type of a project, maybe it was something at work, maybe it was just something personal that you were doing, maybe doing something in your yard at home or in your house to do some repairs or to add something to it. It took a lot of time and effort. You know, years ago when I was younger, working in the hay fields, I don't remember exactly who said it, but we would bale hay, load it directly onto trailers, we'd load it onto trucks, we'd unload it. On one occasion we were working with someone, probably a farmer that we'd bailed for, and uh, as we were loading it into his barn, he was helping us out a little bit. We got to the last bale to put it up in the loft. He said, that's the one we're looking for. Meaning that's the last one. The work is over. It's completed. When you complete something, it's good. And now you're ready to move on to the next challenge. Maybe it's time to sit back and relax just a little bit and to wait for that next time. Today, Christians throughout the world are celebrating, remembering the resurrection of Jesus. Many preachers are speaking about some of the things that Jesus went through in the final hours of his life. Arrested in the garden, his disciples having fallen asleep, sweating drops of blood, in agony saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass, but not my will, but your will be done. Maybe a bit frustrated that Peter, James, and John couldn't stay awake while he was in the garden in agony and praying. But he was arrested, betrayed by one of his own, taken to an unlawful trial to the high priests, then taken to Pilate because the Jews couldn't do anything. Pilate, trying to appease the Jews in some way, had him scourged, still wanting to release him, but they demanded that he be crucified. Jesus, when he was scourged, received 39 lashes. He could have received 40, but if you went over 40 under Jewish law, that was considered retribution and not punishment. So the Jewish mind, they would count to 39 because they didn't want to go over the 40 accidentally. That's why he received 39 lashes. He was then forced to carry his cross until he couldn't, and then one was forced to carry it for him. He was then nailed to a cross. The 
cross was then dropped into a hole in the ground. And he spent time on that cross, reviled by those two criminals who were next to him, but one criminal, then changing his mind and saying, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus told him, this day you shall be with me in paradise. Then finally, Jesus would die. But to make sure of his death, a Roman soldier would thrust a spear into his side Piercing his heart. Now I've skipped a little bit of that that's found in John chapter 19 and verse 30. And that's where I want to direct your attention to today. John chapter 19 and verse 30. Simply put in my Bible, it says at the paragraph, the death of Jesus. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Roman soldiers were shocked that he was dead already. But it's those three words that I want us to think about today. It is finished. Let's consider what was finished when Jesus died on the cross. Consider what God had accomplished at this time. Well, there was the fulfillment of prophecy. That was one of the things that had been completed, that Jesus had finished. We know in the beginning, in the garden, man had fellowship with God. But then in chapter 3, we read that of the sin of Adam and Eve. But prior to that, God had already had a plan by which he would restore man and bring them to him. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before God said, let there be light, before God created the heavens and the earth, God planned a plan for redemption of man and it would be in Christ. This means that our being found in Christ was not a second thought. It was no accident. It was in the eternal purpose and plan of God. But what is the probability that this, that the Jesus we read about in the Gospels is, as they claim that he was truly the Son of God? We have numerous prophecies. Found out in some research on the internet. That's not good for my phone or the computer. Found out that someone said there were between 108 and 356 prophecies concerning Jesus. One calculated the the prophecies and they're coming to fruition. And stated that if just the probability of just eight of the messianic promises being fulfilled in the life of Jesus would be 10 to the 17th power. Now, I'm not that good with math, but it's 10 with 17 zeros. It's one in 100 quadrillion. This individual said to illustrate how this would be, how it would look at. He said, imagine the state of Texas. So just for a moment, visualize the map of Texas, you know, just out here and comes down and down. You know, you're familiar with American geography a little bit. State of Texas, a big state. Second largest state in the union, I believe. He said, 
Imagine the state of Texas being filled knee deep in silver dollars. And included in this huge number, one silver dollar with a black check mark on it. The odds that you, that first coin that would be picked up, with the one with a black check mark would be the same as the eight prophecies being accidentally fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So you have a knee deep, you know, what's that, about two and a half feet? Silver dollars, a black check mark just randomly thrown out into the middle there. Who knows where? You walk all the state of Texas. Pretty soon you're going to get tired. You're going to reach down and pick one up. Is it going to be the one? Probably not. Fulfilling all 48 prophecies would increase the odds to an astronomical number of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. So accidental fulfillment of all of these prophecies is simply beyond the realm of the, poss- of the possibility, so it would be impossible. We know along the way Satan threw up obstacles, but God often through just one made his plan work. Saved by one. Cain kills Abel. But Seth. Abraham received the promise of a son, but it wasn't fulfilled until he was a hundred and Sarah was ninety. There was captivity in Egypt. But God heard their cry and sent Moses. And we can go on and on. So from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 with the seed promise to Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, the promise of Elijah's return who was John, realized in John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11 verses 13 through 14. God was at work paving the way for Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death on the cross. And so when Jesus said those three simple words, it is finished, in part he meant God's work and fulfilling prophecy had been completed. But then there was Jesus' life on the earth, his ministry. And so at this time again, we reflect perhaps a little bit more on his life that we might look at his death and his resurrection. I am certain that you've heard somebody say a phrase, you know, something bad happens to somebody. And then see, you see it and you, they, maybe that person's fallen on hard times. And you say, but for the grace of God, there go I. There are questions about who said this statement. It's attributed to an English evangelical preacher and martyr named John Bradford, living in 1510 to 1555. He is said to utter a variant of that expression. There, but for the grace of God, goes John Bradford when seeing criminals led to the scaffold. What's the difference between one man who chooses a life of crime and one man who becomes a preacher? A lot of influences there. And maybe part of that is the grace of God. Being born into a family of Christian parents. Being taught how to read and write and being, having the Bible upheld as the very word of God. There are a lot of things we could talk about in that. But we need to see the brutality in the life of Christ and what he went through that he accepted for us. As Isaiah the prophet said in chapter 53, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, 
we are healed. Jesus took our punishment, yours and mine, and that should do something to us. So Peter would say it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Or Paul, in dealing with justification by faith in Romans, showing the world is, well, they're lost in sin, separated from God. Saying in chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Stating and proving in his thesis coming to light there at the end of chapter 3. But in chapter 4, showing two great men of faith, Abraham and David, who of Abraham has said, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Same of David. And then in chapter 5, saying, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and he would go on and then in his response in chapter 6 to some who might be thinking, well, if God's grace is so great, let's just sin so that there's more grace, therefore more glory given to God. And he would say, may it never be, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also with him in the likeness of his resurrection. But Paul is just saying, you die with Christ. The old way is gone. You die with Christ in the likeness of his death. You've died to the things of this world that you might live with Christ. And while Jesus lived, it was his ministry to show us the Father. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That phrase, that word, and he dwelt with us, this Greek word is translated tabernacle. Now the Jewish mind, when they heard that, as John was writing those words, their mind would have gone right back to Exodus in the building of the tabernacle. Because that's where God dwelt with Israel. His presence, the pillar of fire by day, the cloud by night. He dwelt there in the Holy of Holies. God lived among Israel. And now Jesus, God is living among his people. But he didn't merely live among them. He taught them. He taught them what God and the kingdom of God was all about. You see, in verse 18, it says the only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. It was Jesus' purpose to explain God to mankind. To those people living at that time, so that they would know what God was like. What the kingdom of God, the rule of God was like. It's been said, and I've said it several times in my preaching, that if you want to boil down the essence of the kingdom of God, read the Sermon on the Mount. And if you want to boil it down even more so, you look at the Beatitudes. The essence of the essence. 
He expanded their understanding of the commandments, not merely by doing them, but by showing that they were truly a matter of the heart. He taught them and taught us to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect by loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. When he was asked in Mark chapter 12 and verse 28 by one who was wanting to know what the things of God were all about. One of the scribes came up, heard the disputing with them, and he answered and said, what is the greatest commandment? Which of the commandments is the most important of all? He was probably wanting to entrap Jesus by pointing to something and saying, but what about this one? Because that's how people do things. And Jesus simply said, the Lord, the most important is hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. There is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbors, oneself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely and said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This man was on the right path on the kingdom of God. Jesus told them, though, there would be a price to pay to be one of his disciples, saying, if anyone wishes to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. but Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that would include loving Christ more than anyone else in this world. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 14 and verses 25 and following, it would be as though if anyone does not hate his mother and father, his wife, his brother, sister, spouse, you, know, you name it. But that was a comparative term, not literal hate. When we hear the word hate, it was a word that really for them meant, if you, don't, if you love anyone more than me, you can't be my disciple. In his John chapter 13, before he would be betrayed, in his last few hours of life, He would wash the feet of the disciples. And that's important. Just when you think that you're really facing it rough and your enemies are getting to you, wash the feet of your enemies. That's what Jesus did. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm coming back. He told them he was on the way, that he was the way to the Father and no one else. He told them that when they saw him, they really saw the Father. And we could go on and on through these passages. And someday, perhaps we will. He was finished. Because he showed them what God was like and what the nature of the kingdom of God was like. He said, it is finished. He paid the price for man's sins. Two weeks ago, we were in a series of from Leviticus, everyone's favorite book, right? We looked at the sin offering, but on two weeks ago, we looked at the Day of Atonement offering. That was a special day in Israel because that was the day they knew that all of the sins of Israel were going to be taken away. 
Aaron would make atonement for himself, we noted. His family, he'd offer a bull on the altar. Then Aaron would take two goats, and one would be the scapegoat, Azazel, would be sent into the wilderness to take the sins of the people out into the wilderness, away from the camp of Israel. The other goat would be the sin offering. That was an important day. Because Israel knew their sins were taken away. The Hebrew writer had to tell Christians that were in danger, in my opinion, Jewish Christians, in danger of going back under the law, that the new covenant is superior to the old. Because God now has spoken through his son. Chapter 1. Because in chapter 2, that Jesus took on humanity, just as you and I did, in chapter 2 and verse 14. That he was a high priest who could sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he was tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. And so the Hebrew writer in chapter 4 and verse 15 would say, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may find mercy, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In chapter 8, we see it's a better covenant. The writer of Hebrews quoting Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31 and following. That God would make a new covenant with the house of Israel. In chapter 9, we see Christ. In chapter 10, we learn of his superiority, of his sacrifice, because we realize that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Saying in verse 14, Christ offered one for... One sacrifice himself for all for sins for all time. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Hebrews 10 and verse 14. So Paul would go on to write in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Stating that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creature. So it is in Christ, because of his sacrifice on the cross, that he died under the law, and God would pass over the sins previously committed. Romans chapter 3, because God, looking at that day of atonement, looking at those sin offerings, seeing the faith of the people that were offering it, did forgive their sins. But as we said in that sermon on the day of atonement, it's much like a credit card. You use it when you go out for a meal today. You pay for it. The restaurant thinks you paid for it. The gas station thinks you paid for the gas. But really, you just made a promise. That company is going to pay your bill. You'll get the bill in the mail 30 days later. And then you pay it. But your bill was paid at the time of the transaction. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what he did for those under the law. When God forgave them, it was like he's looking forward to Jesus. And his forgiveness will be in him. It is finished. Three simple words that mean so much. They're spoken from the cross. God planned a plan that it's finished. Jesus showed us the Father so we could see him. He paid a debt that we did not owe so that we could have life. I saw this on my Facebook feed this morning. thought, this is great. I wish I could have thought of this. The pastor, Rich Villadis, in Brooklyn, New York, 
He just basically said it this way. Jesus goes to the garden to be obedient to the father, undoing Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden. Says it pretty well. Adam and Eve hide behind a tree covered in shame. Jesus hangs on a tree naked and conquers shame. Adam and Eve begin in paradise but are forced outside the gates due to the curse. Jesus dies outside the gates but ends up in paradise due to the cross. Adam and Eve's sin ushered in a curse of thorns. Jesus wears a crown of thorns as he ushered in salvation from sin. Four little points that say a lot. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus said the thief comes to steal and kill and to destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Satan tried to destroy the plan of God from the beginning, but wasn't successful. Satan just bruised the heel of Jesus, a minor blow, but Satan was defeated as Jesus crushed his head. Because three days later, the tomb would be empty. And it remains empty this day. And so Peter would preach on Pentecost. I'll find it here somewhere. Chapter 2. Saying these words, and starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, for it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he goes on to prove that he's the Christ by looking at some of the things that David said. But then he gets down to the end of it. In verse 36, he says, let, us, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Hadn't been that many days. They knew they were reminded. And it says in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You just killed the Messiah. God is not happy with us. There remains nothing for us. Is there anything we can do? They were hoping in their minds against hope. Because what would you do? What would you think if you had killed the Son of God? He's not going to look at this very kindly. But Peter tells them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there was added to that day about 3,000 souls. It is finished. Three simple words covering the plan of God. But it's not finished for us because our time on this earth is still with us right now. But one day, there will come a time 
And what we do today may de- de- determine where you will spend your day in eternity. Have you been born again? Your sins washed away by the blood of Christ. That's only a question that you can answer. Because you know and God knows. But the invitation is yours today to put Christ on in the waters of baptism, to be raised to walk in newness of life. If you have needs of prayer for any reason, won't you please come to Jesus while we stand and while we sing this song for your encouragement.